everywhere you look, from groceries to utilities to gas. Prices keep going up. Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin can dramatically help lower your energy costs year-round by replacing drafty windows and doors in as little as six weeks. And now you can save even more by taking advantage of no interest and no down payment for up to 36 months when you order by November 30th. Set your free in-home consultation today at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome, Wisconsin. It's great to be with you this afternoon. I will be here till 3 o'clock. Again, I am Tracy Johnson. When I am not filling in for Jeff Wagner, I spend my time as the president and CEO for the Association of Commercial Realtors for the state of Wisconsin. So you are going to hear a lot of commercial real estate takes, but we're going to talk about business, politics, the things that interest you. And so so we're going to start here. So 24 hours ago, exactly 24 hours ago, I was in this chair filling in for Jeff Wagner and Greg Matzik came running into the studio and he had breaking news. All right. So great. I have my show all planned out. You know, this is I I still have to put a lot of thought and a lot of organization into this just because I I only do this as a fill in. So it's just not all natural. Um, So, okay, fine. Breaking news. What is this going to be? Craig Council. Not going to the Mets. All right, we got it. Breaking news. So where's he going to go? Fast forward two minutes. We have more breaking news. He's he's going somewhere, but not the Brewers. And then fast forward once again, and we find out that he's going to the Chicago Cubs. It was actually really cool to be part of that, um, to experience that, and 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 to take all of you along with us to experience kind of that 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 process of, of breaking the news. Um, it was really exciting. Uh, one of the things, though, that I did say to someone who was in here, uh, I had been part of breaking news uh, a couple of years ago, but it was a it was unfortunately a shooting. So this was a good kind of breaking news that you want to be a part of. Uh, tons of reaction, obviously, coming in and everyone is still talking about it today. We're still waiting to hear from Craig Council. We're still waiting to see where the Brewers land on all of this. Who's next to to manage the Milwaukee Brewers? And uh, I was just talking about this in the the break area with someone, and uh, they said, you know, I'm really disappointed that they didn't go all in. You know, we we brought this guy up, we brought Craig Council up. He was with us for 15 years, and we couldn't hang on to our hometown guy. Why did we go out with? A $5.5 million offer. Why didn't we go for the gusto? Why did we wait until the last minute to make this offer if we really wanted to keep him here? And, uh, you know, I can't disagree. I mean, he's our hometown guy. Why weren't we able to, to see this coming? We knew his contract was up, but maybe that's just because we're Wisconsin nice. I am not a fan of that. But what I'm also not a fan of is this story out of Whitefish Bay. Uh, it was covered, I think, earlier in the day. Craig Council Park in Whitefish Bay, his sign was vandalized. And this was in the, uh, it, it was a Little League park. It was uh, formerly known as Water Tower Park, but with the name of Craig Council Park. 
the sign was vandalized with spray paint. This is somebody who was so upset that someone would make a business and professional decision to leave Milwaukee that he decided to deface this sign. And I just think, I don't want Craig Council to think, boy, maybe I did make the right decision. These people can't handle uh, a business decision. Uh, nevertheless, uh, that was was disappointing. Um, we're going to touch on this and bring this forward in the 1230. At 1230, we're actually going to talk about sporting events. And are we taking things too far? Are we too emotional about sports here in the United States? Uh, there was a, a story out of Texas that will highlight that further and we'll want you to weigh in. Uh, like I said, great to have you with us. If you want to weigh in at all, 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line, I will want to hear from you throughout the show. Uh, but I want to start here, though, because it is ap- absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, with the jury trial that is underway right now in Milwaukee, it involves the former police officer, Michael Mattioli. And in April of 2020, he was at a party with Joel Acevedo and a number of others and prosecutors say that Mattioli placed Acevedo in a chokehold during a fight, and Acevedo died six years later. Mattioli resigned from the force shortly after, and, and he was charged with, with the murder. So there were, have been tons of delays in this trial, but a lot of media coverage surrounding this case. And we're finally seeing it happen. Now, of course, Mattioli says he didn't do it. He, you know, that he's saying that Acevedo had health problems. Unfortunately, Acevedo isn't able to defend himself. But Mattioli, who is a 13-year veteran of the force, has pleaded not guilty of first-degree reckless homicide. And he faces up to 40 years in prison and another 20 years on extended supervision if convicted. Now, this is going to jury. The jury was selected yesterday and what what i find fascinating about this case and what i am going to continue to keep an eye on is how the jury looks at this and i have a unique perspective and and maybe you do too having one served on a a jury for a criminal case like this I, i i can't believe that i was selected after a series of of questions but but I was selected to be on this this case. And we actually, boy, I was in the courtroom for, it was over a week and a half. But it was a really, really stressful situation. Now, the case that I sat on wasn't in the public. It wasn't in the media. So I had no real reference. I had no chance to really consider all of that. But these jurors, there was a pool of 50 potential jurors, and they were screened throughout the day. Under the questioning from Swanson, who was the person who was interviewing these jurors, these potential jurors, many said that they had seen previous news coverage. Of course, they saw news coverage of the death over the last three years. Eight potential jurors were dismissed immediately after indicating they had already formed an opinion in the case. Now, it's it's really easy to have formed an opinion after being bombarded with news stories, especially after this happened. There were so many different twists and turns in this case dating back to April of 2020. 
Jurors were also asked if they believe police officers should be held to a higher standard than others in society. And if they had ever participated in a civil protest of testimony about drug use and if it would affect their ability to remain fair. So they finally selected 14 jurors, two of them were alternates. But, you know, they're going to be asked to really pay attention to the details in the case like any jury is. It's such a huge, huge responsibility. And obviously the defense thinks that if they just provide the evidence, their client will be found not guilty. This is 40 years in this person's life that's that's at stake. And granted, we did lose a life in this whole altercation, but it just makes me think about the process and how important that, that judicial process and the jury selection and our society and being able to, to look at this without a preconceived notion. So we will continue to follow this and we will hope that what the jury decides does not lead to further consequence. A lot of times there's uproar and upheaval if this is some sort of, if there was some sort of controversy, because I think a lot of people have already made up their mind. Is Michael Mattioli guilty? Is he not guilty? I think a lot of people have already formed an opinion on this. And so these jurors are really left with this Herculean task to decipher, to decide, to listen, and to keep an open mind. So uh, the first witnesses are taking the stand today. It's expected to be the police officers who were with Acevedo and Mattioli at the time of the incident. We'll continue to keep our eye on that. But when we come back, do endorsements matter. It's 1216. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner here on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. If you want to weigh in or if you want to correct me, um, I want to clarify when I was giving the kind of the background on the Michael Mattioli trial, uh, Joel Acevedo, the, the the person who died in the incident uh, died six days after he went to the hospital, not six years after he went to the hospital. So thank you for that. Uh, We will continue to keep our eye on that trial. And man, my heart goes out to the people who are on that jury, just having served on a jury, understanding what a huge responsibility that is. And for those of you who have been there, who have been on a trial that has lasted multiple days or weeks, uh, you know you know the responsibility, especially when there there might be questions in the case. And in this particular case, when there is so much media coverage, when it's difficult to not consider that or to not go in with a preconceived uh, notion. So today is Election Day. It's Election Day Tuesday across the country. And there are a number of high profile races. I know a number of them that I'm keeping my eye on include the governor's race in Kentucky and in Mississippi and uh, there are a number of races in Virginia that I think will will help kind of show us what will happen in the 2024 election and in some of the primaries and all of that. So we're reaching a crucial moment, though, when it comes to these presidential primaries with the third debate on Wednesday in Miami. And we have learned the RNC has announced the candidates who will be up on stage. I know yesterday we were kind of trying to figure out who did and who did not meet the threshold. We've got Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and 
Tim Scott. I like to see that field a little bit smaller, and I'd still like to see it a, a little bit smaller still. And I think that we'll start to see that kind of winnow down in the coming days and months. But but also yesterday, we saw two big endorsements come down for two of these candidates. And it made me think about the impact and the effectiveness of, of endorsements. Yesterday, Governor Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and candidate, candidate Ron DeSantis. They have been friends for many years. Ron DeSantis has, uh, has, has gone to Iowa to campaign for Kim Reynolds, and so they are very good friends. There was a lot of speculation that she would sit it out because the polls in Iowa right now do not show Ron DeSantis in the lead, and so obviously there was a calculation on her part. So she endorsed Ron DeSantis. And yesterday, we also saw an endorsement for former President Trump, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the governor of Arkansas. She endorsed Donald Trump. Now, I'm not really surprised by either of these, but it it did make me wonder if these endorsements really matter to the voters. Does it really matter? These are are very well-known candidates, both Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Do they really need the lift from a sitting governor? We've been seeing newspapers move away from endorsements because, like everything else, it's divisive. So the calculus and the calculation is obviously very, very important for both of both of these sitting governors. But more importantly to the voters, do these endorsements matter? Do they matter to you? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And again, I suppose if you have a lesser known candidate, the endorsement from the more established would make sense. Or perhaps it's about directing fundraiser dollar, fundraising dollars or making headlines in the newspaper like these clearly have. But do they work? And so it made me think about other types of endorsements like celebrities and things like that. You had Aaron Rodgers with State Farm and George Clooney with the Omega Watches and so on and so forth. But political endorsements are are different and they carry a lot of weight because once you make that endorsement, obviously the calculation is, is can you go back? And what happens now if your candidate doesn't make it through? And it, as we've seen with some of these candidates, they get vindictive and divisive and threatening. So, so what really goes into that calculation? You have got to have a really strong relationship with these candidates in order to make that call. But do those endorsements matter to you? Whether it's a presidential endorsement or a gubernatorial endorsement, I almost feel like we're seeing fewer and fewer of them. And maybe it's just because I, I look at the press and look at the newspapers who are, are doing less and less of them. Or maybe it's because people are just saying, you know, this is too controversial for me. But do they matter to you? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Or as voters, should we just be paying attention? And, and making our own decisions. Do we have enough channels, enough medium to ask the politicians questions, to ask these potential elected officials what their stance on the issues is? Is it up to us to make those decisions? We have so many opportunities to view them, to see them in a debate setting, to hear from them on the debate trail. 
So does it matter to you? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. It's 1224. I'm Tracy Johnson. In for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson. In for Jeff Wagner. Through three o'clock today. And Aaron in the producer booth. We are we're trying to kill it for this first half hour. So far, so good. So endorsements, do endorsements matter to you when it comes to political races? Phil and Stevens Point, you're on WTMJ. I don't believe in endorsements. I think they're a bunch of uh, BS because it just creates a, a complacency, a laziness with people who are more like sheep that just follow the leader, you know, instead of us. Because when we elect these people, we are the leaders of these people. We, we, um, we, you know, they're, they're our servants. And if someone endorses them, I mean, we, we're the ones that endorse at the polling place, yeah. not saying, you know, Aaron Rodgers is, oh, you got to vote for so-and-so or this or that. And then what are we? Just, you know, dummies following the, you know, we got to do our homework. It's simple. I, I like it. You're going to pay attention. You're going to make your decision. You don't need somebody else to tell you what to do, even if it is another elected official. Um, I think we're going to see more. Yeah, correct. Fewer and fewer of these endorsements, um, but we did see two big endorsements yesterday of Donald Trump and Ronda Santos. Phil, thanks for the call. I know on the text line, um, people are saying, I, I, I wish electing, electing someone was like buying a TV. I like to read the reviews. Uh, I buy a product product if it's proven reliable uh too bad we don't have a system where we can give them one to five stars over their careers and compare them to their competitors uh I, a number of others say uh the only time an endorsement sways me is if someone i dislike endorses someone i thought i liked and i end up rethinking it it can also make me dislike someone who endorses someone i dislike so you know, I think we are seeing, I think overwhelmingly people are suggesting that endorsements really don't matter to them. I think we have a, a smart audience that wants to make its own decisions, that wants to uh, really pay attention, because at the end of the day, we are going to be responsible for the for the outcome. And I, I think I take it a step back and I kind of personalize this and I am not running for public office. I have never run for public office, but, you know, I am occasionally asked to endorse people, um, whether it is for public office or let's take it down a notch and say, just even in the business setting or if someone looking for, for a job. And I do not take that responsibility lightly. Uh, if somebody asks for a letter of recommendation or asks for an endorsement, I mean, that is a, a reflection of you. That is a reflection of your character. And I think more and more, at least one of the things that I see is that if if there is an endorsement and there's a disconnect between the values of the endorsed and the endorsee or the endorser, uh, that it, it really is difficult to unsee it or unendorse. I know thinking back to the presidential elections, uh, there were a number of candidates, whether it was President Biden or Donald Trump, who sought endorsements and were endorsed. I, I think of The Rock, right? The The Rock and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example. Those are not two elected people right now, but celebrities. They were full-throated endorsements for President Joe Biden. And, you know, how do you 
respond to that? How do you nuance that? How do you respond if now two years or four years later, your reputation is is tied to their their action and to what is their reputation? I think it's a it's a it's a difficult dance that many in the spotlight, whether it's an elected official, a, a governor or a celebrity has to dance. And it, it, it makes me really, really think. And I know if I'm ever asked to endorse or write a letter of recommendation, which is essentially what this is, you know, I have to think really, really long and hard to do it. And so I know these are, are different applications when it's done on a personal level. But still, I, I think the same kind of principles do apply. All right, when we come back, uh, sports, sporting events, have they become dangerous for fans? We will discuss after the break. It's 1232 right here on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner, at least till three o'clock today with producer Aaron in the booth. So, we were we started the show talking about unruly behavior of a resident in Whitefish Bay who defaced a sign at the Craig Council Park. And this was just uncalled. I know actually people are weighing in on this. This is just ridiculous. And I hope that it doesn't cause Craig Council to say, oh, OK, maybe maybe this is getting a little a little hot in here. So I'm going to have to <laughs> figure out. Uh, another situation. I mean, we still owe this person the respect of you know being here and for all he's done and all he will continue to do for our community. So we'll continue to follow that. But, you know, it, it leads me into this kind of next larger topic about sports and about fans and fan behavior. I attend my fair share of sporting events. I have two kids, a 10 year old and a 13 year old, and they both are very active in all types of sports and whether it's at the elementary, middle, high school, collegiate or professional level, sports are emotional and sports are personal, but it shouldn't be dangerous. This brings me to a story from over the weekend and I don't know if you've seen this video. If you haven't, I, I suggest you take a look for it. It was a video of a game out of Texas between Texas Southern and Jackson State. Uh, the video was shot from multiple angles because now in a day and age of social media, everything happens. <laughs> everything is taken from multiple angles. But it showed a tuba player. Okay, I want you to, to, to visualize this. A, a, a gentleman standing on the stands playing the tuba with his the marching band, with the band. So he's playing the big tuba. You know what the tuba is. It goes kind of around your body. It's the biggest horn instrument uh, that there is. So he's performing on the stands, and the video shows that he is being heckled by a fan. So a fan has targeted this tuba player and is shouting at him and talking to him and getting kind of animated. And... This this kind of goes on, and the tuba player is kind of doing his thing, you know, going back and forth to the song. And the fan literally got in this tuba player's face. And so what did the tuba player do? He socked him. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in the face. Just pow, 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 pow. And the fan fell backwards, and 
what I thought was, you know, watching the video, the tuba player just kind of acted like he didn't miss a beat, so to speak. He just continued on. Now, there's speculation that the fan was annoyed because of maybe he got spat on by the tuba or something like that. But we don't know for sure. But how and why this person was heckling in the first place doesn't really matter. Uh, we still don't know the extent of the injuries or if the tuba player is, is going to face criminal charges. All right. So this is still kind of developing. And then earlier this year, there was a 53-year-old New England Patriots supporter who died after being beaten by a Miami Dolphin fan. All of these things kind of happening in these professional sports complexes and in these professional sports settings. The stories about bad fan behavior is sweeping social media and sweeping the nation. Now, I don't know if it's because the advent of social media or because we have our cell phones, we're seeing this so much more and we're given this ability to, to, to have these, these altercations go viral. And that's what's kind of perpetuating this, this bad behavior. But I don't think these are isolated incidents. And, you know, as somebody who frequents sporting events, as somebody who likes to get into the game, it makes me think about the safety and if these sporting events are becoming dangerous for the fans. Now, whether you are an innocent bystander or you get in the tussle, whether you have a disagreement you know, are these sporting events becoming dangerous for the fans? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. When I sit on the sidelines, and I was just recently at uh, a Packers game, I was at the Packers-Saints game, and, you know, for the life of me, I can't figure out why some of these, the opposing team's fans, I, I, I just, I would never go to a game in the town where my team wasn't playing. It just... I, I don't know. It's just asking for problems. But, you know, when I sit on the sidelines, I know that tempers flare and I know that we're competitive. And, you know, but but why are we so emotional about this? And what makes fans think that they can just get in these tussles or that they can heckle or they can yell? Why are they so emotional? I think it might be a broader, uh, broader suggestion that our society might be becoming kind of tossed up and kind of controversial and angry and always looking for a fight. But, but as a fan who wants to go and enjoy the game, I have to think, are these games becoming dangerous for the fans? And are these safe places to take your family? Are you seeing this or is, are these isolated incidents? Is it because of alcohol? Is it because of the fact that people are betting on these games and there's money tied up in, in these games? What's fueling this emotion and what's fueling kind of this increase in violence at the games amongst the fans? What made this fan think that he could get in the face of this tuba player? Because at the end of the day, whether there are criminal charges filed or not, this guy is probably injured. If you look at the video, there's a very good chance that he has some sort of a broken arm or something banged his head. And so what is fueling this? And are these sporting events becoming too dangerous for the fans? Are you thinking about maybe not going to these sporting events because of 
the violence. I hate to use that word because it is turning into violence. When somebody dies at a game because of an altercation, that's what that is. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Your reaction, my response when we return. Great to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Tracy in for Jeff Wagner here until three o'clock. We are discussing the fans behaving badly, fans behaving badly in the stands, so much so that earlier this year, a 53 year old fan, uh, a New England Patriots supporter died after being beaten by a Miami Dolphins fan. And I asked the question, are these sporting events safe to go to anymore? For the fans, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Uh, we have a, a lot of texters weighing in saying, I see entitlement and territorial mentalities being displayed at games and concerts, especially in general seating. Uh, Jeff suggests, I don't, I have definitely cut down on going to these events. Uh, also from the 920, experience tells people that they can do anything without the consequences. I think this is a great point. Some want to be in an over the top video. Yeah. This is all about the gram, right? Let's see how many clicks we can get. Let's see how many views we can get. This is all about social media. But at the end, rage should not be accepted. But sadly, here we are. A number of texters are suggesting there's an entitlement syndrome. I paid for my ticket and I can do anything I want. But I think the the main takeaway here is this just lack of common societal courtesy. And it's it's driving people away from these games. What a, what a tragedy that as fans, just like in society, law-abiding, courteous people who just want to enjoy a rivalry, rivalry, want to enjoy a sporting event, can't attend these things anymore because they are potentially in danger of getting a beer chucked on them or, heaven forbid, get in the middle of a fist fight. Or imagine if you take your children to these games, what kind of not only danger could they be in, but what kind of environment and atmosphere are you exposing them to if there's violence and there's name-calling and there's this raw emotion that goes uncontrolled? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love a good rivalry, and I love a good match, and I love school spirit, and I used to be a cheerleader. I I live for getting into the game, but... This is this is getting this is getting out of control. And I actually have a little bit of worry for what's to come, especially for all of these sporting events. And and are we going to be subject to more rules? Are there going to have to be more officers or patrols going through the stands, keeping an eye out? And what's really driving this? I mean, we've had sporting events for years, but we don't actually know what's contributing to the rise in in this violence. If you want to weigh in, we'll stick with this for one more segment. 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Uh, one texter says that everywhere and everything is dangerous. Uh, if you are an obnoxious jerk who mistreats others, uh, average people are conducting themselves with good manners. I, I completely agree. Most people 
can go to an event, they can watch a sporting event, and they behave just fine. But it's always those jerks who wreck it for the rest of us. And I I will be interested to see how this kind of tuba incident plays out and what was really behind it. Maybe they were rivals. Maybe they were, maybe they knew each other. Maybe, heaven forbid, the tuba spit got on this guy and he got upset. But that is not a reason to go up to someone and and heckle them and get in their face. And, you know, I don't want to let this tuba player off the hook because he, he, he should not have punched this guy. Now, I don't know what the answer is, but the fact that we have gotten to this point where it's okay to have these confrontations and these altercations, I think is a really sad statement on society. And, you know, moving to this, and this was really kind of, kind of one of the other angles on this story. If you recall, just a few months ago, actually in late September, Milwaukee Lutheran High School football game was actually called off because of reports of of shots fired. So, you know, at the same time that we're talking about violence in the fans, we're we're talking about violence all around these sporting events, these sacred traditions that we all know and love that are part of Americana and part of our our day our daily lives. Going to football games, going to sporting events, are they becoming too dangerous? And, and what is the solution for going forward? You know, is, it, is this what's driving everyone to watch the games on their couch? I mean, I don't have to worry about an obnoxious fan. I don't have to worry about getting beer spilled on me. I don't have to worry about going through a metal detector or seeing somebody brandish a weapon at, if I'm sitting in my living room. But then I'm missing out on what I think is so important and so amazing about going to a sporting event. And that is the camaraderie and the showmanship and the competition. But we just need to cool our jets on this, I think, as a society. And I don't know where it goes and and how it stops. How many more people is it going to take to get punched in the face or fall backwards and crack their head open? I sure hope not too many more. But yes, I agree with so many of the textures who, who suggest common decency. Come on, guys, cool it. It's just a game. It's 1251. We'll continue this conversation when we come back. 855-616-1620 on the Old National Bank talk and text line. Welcome back on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. We're discussing this tuba incident where in Texas at a football game, a tuba player who was being heckled punched the heckler. Now, we don't know if charges have been filed or if the guy who got punched is injured, but it brings up this kind of this question of sporting events being potentially dangerous for fans and are they i mean there's no evidence that people are afraid to go to sporting events right these are packed houses at all times but some of these incidents are are scary right when you have a a fan dying from getting beat up by a rival fan in the stands so what's fueling this why are we so emotionally attached to it james on the south side you're on wtmj yeah, one that's fun and uh, entertainment and everything else 
going to concerts or or sporting events all of a sudden become violent type of thing. Uh, you know, um, like you get at soccer matches or that in Europe or whatever it is. You know, sure you had maybe a bad day, bad week, bad whatever it is, but hey, don't take it out on us uh, by dumping beer on us or pushing or shoving or whatever it might be or out of control. Go uh, go park your diagram thing out by the gate there. Uh, sit out there and tailgate and say say out there or go to your favorite bar or or sit at uh, your man, go in your man cave or sit in your uh, sit on the couch and be at the, be a diagram couch potato. But don't 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 have to ruin for all of us that pay whether it's fifty or five hundred or thousand dollars for ticket uh, to to get uh, you know all this other diagram uh, free entertainment uh, short of getting ourselves killed or beaten up or whatever that is. Who the hell wants to do that? I mean, yeah. shouldn't we be able to enjoy our, our, our events and stuff like that? But it seems that we can't even enjoy going downtown or streets or anything else these days because so much violence is around there. Everybody, wa- everybody wants your shoes. Tracy, if you're walking with your shoes and all of a sudden somebody says, hey, I like your shoes and grabs your shoes off your feet. Yeah. Uh, whether you got Reeboks or you got uh, whatever it is, uh, type of tennis shoes or or heels or whatever it is, you're going out with friends. Come on, if you you know you know it's just like I want your clothes or I want this or I want that. I mean, it's yeah. like work for the darker thing. Don't yeah. don't, don't don't tread on me and don't don't get in my darker space because you're because you're just a darker you know. Yeah, well, it, fans, person in <laughs> James, thanks for the call. I think he he makes a a, a good point. It's like. We don't want to change our behavior if we are following the rules. And, you know, a number of texters are suggesting that it's not that dangerous. And I get it. I'm not trying to to make it seem like the world is falling. But I feel like we're seeing more and more of this bad behavior. And maybe it's just a, a commentary on society in general that it's, it's we can't have nice things anymore because of people just getting so emotional about it. And, you know, I saw some of these very emotional texts and some of these calls yesterday with the reaction to Craig Council's departure to, to Chicago. I'm not saying that everybody's getting violent over this, but we are so emotionally attached to our sports. And, you know, it, it, at some point it, it gets dangerous. And for the fans in the stands, I guess I, I don't have a piece of advice I will continue to go to my my favorite sporting events, the Marquette games, the the Badgers games, the Bucks games, and all of that. And and generally, those are pretty well behaved. But I definitely will be keeping an eye on this. So so I guess a note to those out there participating in events: pay attention to the people around you. This is just a game. It's just a game. All right. When we come back, the mayor of Milwaukee wants to have one million people living in the city and he's got some new plans for parking that will fuel commercial development we'll discuss when we return live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now filling in for jeff wagner here's tracy johnson One oh eight on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. You know, Greg Matzik, who just did the news. Every time I see him, I'm going to think, is there breaking news? <laughs> because I saw him three times yesterday with three breaking news events. Um, obviously, that, that that was the news of uh, Craig Council going to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, so switching gears here uh, in Wisconsin, 
it is no secret that we love our cars. We are dependent on our cars, even if the average car payment is $750 a month. Everyone drives. We have transit in our region, whether it's Milwaukee, Waukesha, we have connectors, we have a transit system, albeit uh, continues to, to evolve, I would suggest. And then we have the hop. All right. In downtown Milwaukee, it's the, the loop uh, that moves around the city where they're planning to make a number of extensions through different parts of the neighborhood. And we also have a very walkable city, or at least a lot of people say that that one that is one of the, the reasons they like to be in Milwaukee, that it's, it's very walkable. It's a very uh, it's a small, big city, if you will. But we still rely on our cars. Another fun fact is that the commute time for Milwaukee is around 21 minutes, the average commute time. So if you go door to door, think about your commute to the office, whether it was into downtown Milwaukee or into a suburb or out to a suburb from Milwaukee or through the city or what have you, the average commute time is 21 minutes. And another fun fact, another important data point to to remember, is that in downtown Milwaukee, 90 thousand people work in the city and we're seeing a lot of new commercial development that is is driving those numbers up you've got the northwestern mutual tower that will be bringing all those workers from franklin into downtown milwaukee you have baird that just leased out a whole uh, another floor in the u.s bank building and while there are ninety thousand people who work downtown only ten thousand people live here And the mayor, Mayor Cavalier Johnson, has suggested that he wants to grow the population of our city to one million. Right now, we're sitting around 600,000 people. At the same time, there was a new initiative announced that is mirroring many cities throughout the, the country. And that is the push to reduce parking availability in order to force more people onto public transportation, reduce congestion, pollution, but also the thinking is to reduce the cost of construction and therefore, in the case of dense housing, reduce the cost of home ownership and rent. This would, of course, solve for the affordability issues that we always are talking about in commercial real estate. We're talking about in real estate in general. And, you know, just what does this mean for our community's ability to attract and retain people to work in our cities? So this discussion is just getting started here in Milwaukee, but it is fully underway in Austin, Texas, which is a city that many of you have traveled to. Many of you have family members there. Uh, I have not been to Austin, Texas, but it is on the rise And they have adopted this new development standard, which is to get rid of the minimum parking requirements for developments. And they're really suggesting that this move is expected to decrease home prices and rents as construction costs would fall as a result of not having to build parking spots. All right. So this is a little bit complicated to to think about. But the rationale behind it is really that that we would be able to save money on construction costs because the average cost to build a parking spot is somewhere around uh, $5,000 uh, and $60,000 to build a, a single parking space, depending on the city in which it's built. 
And so they're saying if we don't have to spend the money to build that parking spot, we won't have to pass that along in rent and we won't have to pass that along in in a lease cost. And in the city of Milwaukee right now, they're mandated to provide at least one parking spot for every development or one every unit or one apartment. And so many of you who are listening who are in these developments know the drill. You move into an apartment, you have the opportunity to rent this space. Now, this parking minimum, this, this, this getting rid of the parking minimum is also flowing to commercial developments. And so they're saying, you know, parking spot per thousand square feet, that will no longer be required. We are not going to mandate that commercial development or residential development have these parking spots. So if they're pushing this in Austin and they've pushed it in Minneapolis and pushed it in in a number of other cities, will it work here in Milwaukee? Or are we just too dependent on our cars? We do have housing issues and we do have affordability issues, but will reducing the number of parking spots really work and will people go for it or will it cause another consequence people not coming downtown people not wanting to come to work people not wanting to shop here 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line you know this is being proposed and it's still an initial discussion in the city of milwaukee and i'm really surprised at the people who are pushing for it and the people who are opposed to it because there are all sorts of little intricacies. But my main question is what does this do to our businesses? What does this do for our office tenants? What does this do to our economic vitality in downtown Milwaukee? If we don't have parking for people, when you think about it, 90,000 people, work in downtown Milwaukee. When we look at the traffic counts on 94 East and West and I-794, we see tens of thousands of people pouring into the city each and every day to go to work or go to a restaurant or go to a sporting event. Do you think that we should reduce the number of parking spots in Milwaukee? And will this work? Will this help Milwaukee realize this goal of 1 million residents, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Your response, my reaction when we return. All right, that's where we need to... uh, this again, we should just do a music show. I feel like we could and just roll the Huey Lewis all day long. All right. So the the, the mayor of Milwaukee wants to uh, get rid of minimum parking requirements for new commercial developments. He says that it will increase the amount of green space. It will be better for congestion. It will encourage more people to use transit. And most importantly, it will reduce the cost of construction on apartments or commercial development because you won't be financing and you won't be paying for the cost of building those parking spots, which can range in costs from $5,000 to $60,000. And we, we have a number of, of people weighing in. 
Uh, they, they say they're, they're not anti-car and I am not anti-car, by the way. I, I'm actually, or, and I'm not anti-transit, by the way. I sit on a number of boards and committees where we really think about how do we use transit more effectively. But, but my question is, are we too dependent on our cars to even think about reducing the number of parking spots? If we want one million people to live in Milwaukee and we want to then increase the number of people who work downtown, are we going to be able to do the, those two things if we reduce their access to parking and the number of parking spots? Now, I sit on a number of planning committees for the city of Milwaukee and get involved in a lot of these conversations about why people want to come to Milwaukee, why they want to develop here, why they want to start a business, why they want to expand their business. And it's a, it's kind of interesting. The top thing they say is access to parking and how easy it is to park. I mean, this city was not built on a transit infrastructure and with our culture and the way that our city is laid out is not you you can barely exist without a car and there are a lot of people who do it and i know that there are a lot of people who do it and i know there are a lot of people who will be forced to do it in the future because the cost of a car is is so much but is this requirement or this effort to reduce the number of parking spots Going to backfire on the city, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, this is a plan that would go into place for new developments. And I've seen a number of proposals, and I know there have been a number of developers who put up apartment buildings without access to parking that aren't complying to the code. And one of the texters asked in the first place, why do they even have these parking minimums? And the answer is it's it's because they do. That's part of the zoning. And sometimes there is no rhyme and reason. Other times it's really to create some rules and a framework for the people who are making the investment and doing the development. And so now you see lots of cities across the country who are deconstructing that. And they're saying, we want our city to be walkable. We want our city to be more transit-oriented. And so the way that they do it is by reducing the number of parking spots, by reducing the incentive to create parking spots. But I, but I think here in Milwaukee, at least, there it might be a, a bit of a mismatch because of our over-reliance on parking. Again, we have something like 10,000 people living in the downtown proper, but 90,000 people who work here. They come from the suburbs and, you know, we're going to have to take flight with our investment in transit and our BRT and all the other modes of transportation to get people into downtown if that's what we really want, while at the same time reducing the parking. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say we don't have a lot of parking. I mean, we do have a lot of parking. It's to code. And some people would say we have too much parking. And some people would say that our parking lots look horrendous. They look ridiculous. But as someone who hires people to work downtown, I will not be able to make an offer to someone if I do not include parking. It is just baked in to the way that people think, at least people that are from this area, people that are from this community. They want to they want to drive their cars. They love their cars.
It is part of our culture and just like tailgating. So I think this is an important discussion to, to have, and perhaps there will be some middle ground. I know that uh, we have a DCD director who was very interested in increasing the amount of commercial development and is very receptive to the stakeholders, whether they support the idea or not. But right now, for me, what I'm hearing from businesses, from owners, from employees, is that they're not ready to really think about reducing the amount of parking or doing away with kind of this, this, this convenience that it creates. They like the idea of it, but now put it into practice. And I think we have a different story. So we'll continue to follow that. The hearings were just uh, last night. And again, some of these were fiery discussions on both sides. So I am interested as a stakeholder in all of this to to follow the bouncing ball here. When we come back, an update to a story that we are following regarding the sale of Northridge Mall. I see some of these current conversations as a step in the right direction. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty on the old National Bank talk and text line. They could be coming for your parking. Is this a good idea for the city of Milwaukee to reduce the number of required parking spots for new development and overall trying to reduce the number of parking spots per unit? Dennis in Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Tracy. Uh, proud to be a first-time caller of your show. Thank you. Um, re- regarding the parking, um, I get downtown quite often, and like I told your producer since the COVID pandemic in 2020, parking has never been easier because so many people are working from home. Mm. Um, let me say I am not a fan of working from home. <laughs> I think if I hadn't already been retired, requiring me to work from home would have pushed me into retirement. But I guess working from home, sure. like it or, or not, is going to be a fact of life. Um, secondly, um what I hear from a lot of people is that government has too many regulations. Well, here, the government, city of Milwaukee, is going to eliminate a, a regulation for mm-hmm. a required number of parking spaces and leave it up to the developer. The developer can have as many parking spaces as they want based on, on marketing studies. Mm-hmm. But I think the developer should decide as opposed to the city. Dennis, I, you make a number of great points. Uh, thank you for the call. You, you know, he suggests that there is more parking downtown because people are working from home. And even though Wisconsin, even though Milwaukee has kind of, we, we've hit something like the 85% mark in terms of where we were pre-COVID, we still have a lot of people who aren't working full time in the office and they're not utilizing their parking spaces. So maybe there's a calculation. Maybe there's a formula here. He also makes a really good point about getting rid of the red tape and the regulation. Why is government even mandating this in the first place? So getting rid of these minimums could be a good idea. Steve in Oak Creek, you're on WTMJ. Uh, thank you, and I would agree with you that we definitely need to have parking downtown in the city. It has to be plentiful. It has to be convenient. It has to be reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have to recognize that in terms of the goal of a million residents in Milwaukee. Oh, we lost it, Steve. Footprint. Yes. Oh, 
we're losing the connection. Steve, one more time. Uh, we have to recognize that the city of Milwaukee is relatively small in this geographic footprint. It's, it's actually smaller than the city of Mequon and smaller than the city of Oak Creek. It's going to be hard to grow to a million population in the city of Milwaukee based on the small geographic footprint. Yeah, I, I think, and I and I like where you are probably going with this, Steve, in terms of, you know, we we need density. So we need what people want to use and what the market will decide, but... Also, if we're going to have that density, you know, is is it possible that we don't need all that parking? And will that parking actually take up the space that will be needed for housing? Potentially, Steve. Uh, the parking has to be plentiful and, and uh, convenient to everybody. Yes. Uh, no, I agree. Steve, thanks for the call. We, we've got a number of, of texters suggesting, you know, that uh, we need to have parking. There's a ton of competition from the suburbs. You see the rise in the interest in development of these town centers that have kind of their one-stop shops, right? You can go to your municipal building. You can go to the restaurant. You can go to retail. You've got this in Oak Creek. You've got this in Mequon. You see it in Brookfield at the corners, these town center concepts that are really competing with the, the downtowns. And if the city wants to get to that goal of a million, if the city wants to continue to encourage that development, you know, I think there's a happy medium here to say, how do we engage all these stakeholders? Because a lot of the people expressing concern, myself included, really want to to have access to that parking because I am not moving back downtown right now. It is not convenient for my lifestyle. I need to send my kids to school. We've got a lot of other issues that can't be solved in the time that it would take to, to, to grow that population. You know, you've got to solve for, for quality of life. You've got to solve for safety. You've got to solve for uh, schools and education. And so I think we have to be really careful and also very inclusive in our conversation with the users. You know, many of the people calling don't live in the city. They are not going to have a voice in this unless they're asked. Will you continue to patronize downtown? Will you continue to come to your office? And in turn, what kind of confidence does that give to the business that leases these thousands of square feet of office in downtown Milwaukee to continue uh, with that lease and with that expectation? Chris, in Mequon, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking the call. I appreciate it. What do you think? I think so. As somebody who does not live in Milwaukee but commutes into Milwaukee on a daily basis, um, my wife and I have talked about potentially relocating down. But without with the safety aspect of of you know crime of everything going on in Milwaukee, to try to get to a million people in Milwaukee proper, somebody had brought up the density, you know, the, the density aspect, the size of Milwaukee. How do we do that? But as somebody who commutes down, you know, looking at transit, look at what's going on in 43, the growth of 43, you know, with uh, new lanes and trying to get more people down. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to it? If, we, if we're going to eliminate parking, well, how are you going to do mass transit? Where are you going to put trains or more buses to get down to Milwaukee um, with reducing, you know, additional parking if that's what the goal is? Yeah, I think you make a great point. And Chris, if you are in Mequon, you are right where I'm from. And so dealing with that 43 is certainly madness. But 
it does make me think every time I go on that corridor and with the expansion going from two lanes to three, you know, this is going to become a major artery. And these cities should embrace that opportunity to have all that traffic uh, coming to the city and all that activity and, and ease of use. Because I do think about it. I do think about it. Is it easier for me to to go uh, to the corner to to an entertainment event to the movie theater right in Mequon, or do I want to take take my family to the symphony orchestra? You know, how do I oh, absolutely reconcile these two these two opportunities and don't put barriers up uh, when you're trying to attract all these people to to know and love the city? And you touch on another good point, which is crime. And safety on the roads and making sure that we shore up all these different things at the same time. Chris, thanks for the call. Um, Thank you. So so where do we go from here? I think there's a lot to continue to be discussed when it comes to transit investment, when it comes to investment in parking. I think there are a lot of stakeholder meetings that still need to be had with users of the system, with people who use the parking. But I'm coming back to one of our callers who said the less we can have government intervention in trying to make rules for the free market, the better off we probably are in some of these development standpoints. If people want to rent an apartment where there is no parking, well then rent an apartment where there is no parking. If people want to go to a grocery store where they don't have a parking lot, where they're not able to access their car, then then let them try that. Let them do that. Let the market decide. But what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, is that this market likes its four wheels. They like their cars. More when we return on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. One thirty-seven on WTMJ. Welcome back. It's great to be with you on this Tuesday afternoon. It's almost like a event-free, not breaking news <laughs> Tuesday afternoon. Uh, producer Aaron in the booth. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner until three o'clock today. So, boy, that was a that was a great topic discussing cars and parking in Milwaukee. We have a lot of runway to go here on this topic, and the city is just beginning these discussions with stakeholders and different community groups to say. Do we really need this much parking? So, all right. Uh, over the uh, there are a number of stories over the past day, a few days that that caught my attention, and they have to do with the the UAW and the union and the strikes that many believe in the industry were largely successful. And for those who aren't following super close. The United Auto Workers conducted selective strikes and ultimately got some of what they wanted in their negotiations. They got higher wages, more time off, more job security for some. And as we saw, the plant in Stellantis, uh, the Stellantis plant uh, here in Milwaukee, they ended up shutting that, that plant down. So that was not job security. So outside this particular deal that was struck, it made me think about the future of unions. And when you look at the number of existing union members and the enthusiasm around unions, particularly because there have been so many strikes of late and most of the strikes have led to favorable outcomes. It just, it just made me wonder if the unions and union participation is, 
is having a moment. And if I were making a decision today, I would seek a, a union environment. Now, there are many people in this audience listening who are part of the union. There's public sector unions, there's private sector unions, um, there are the trade unions, which are, are kind of that part of that, a subset of that. And I spent some time working for a trade union, so I, I do have a, a bit of a bias and a bit of, of insight onto that. But again, it made me think about you know seeking culture and seeking job opportunities in these types of environments. We see union membership, uh, according to BLS, uh, the union membership skews towards middle-aged workers, and there is a low percentage of workers in that kind of 25 to 35-year range. So for those young people out there, are you looking to be a part of a union environment? We see even non-union companies like a Starbucks uh, unionizing. We see Amazon uh, moving towards unionization. We see a number of healthcare facilities moving towards that unionization. And I think there has been a lot of communication and a, a lot of press around why these strikes need to happen and why these negotiations need to be opened up. And I think largely they're seen as successful. And, and at first, when I was watching some of this play out, especially with the UAW, and they were talking about the increase in price of cars and the cost of of, of goods, you know, I, I thought, oh gosh, this is not good for the unions because this is making this is pitting an argument. This is setting up a fight. But a lot of the feedback on the backside here has suggested that. These strikes and the communication that surrounded these strikes actually had an effect that created a more favorable environment for the unions and for seeking out and for these union types of jobs. And it, it made me think, and I, I'd love to hear from you, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Are the unions having a moment? Would you seek a union job or recommend to someone else? that they seek a, a union environment to seek employment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Your reaction, my response when we return. Are unions having a moment? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm Tracy Johnson in for... Jeff Wagner, we saw what would many would would suggest was a successful outcome for the United Auto Workers in the recent strike that basically took 50,000 of the UAW workers of the 150,000 union members out on strike to demand higher wages, to demand better working conditions, to demand better benefits and some job security. For the workers, and and it made me ponder, maybe wonder, if unions are actually having a moment. Mike in Illinois, what do you think? Good afternoon, Tracy. Um, yeah, I think they're having a bit of an upswing. Um, as I was telling your producer, uh, I personally think it started with COVID when mm -hmm. companies were very desperate to hire people and they were increasing wages. A lot of union, in particular, manufacturing uh, companies, they weren't laying anybody off because you know their still their products were in demand still. They were essential. Um, and I think eventually 
they were probably under contract too. When those contracts um, were going to expire and they saw how much wages had gone up uh, with other jobs, you know, they said, well, you know, we want more too. Mm-hmm. And with the current inflation, I, they, you know, maybe had a, something on their side to say, Hey, you know, you know, prices are up too. So, you know, we deserve it. So that's my take on it. So do you think that some of these negotiations could have been better handled behind closed doors? Or do you think it's necessary that every time they want an increase that it has to be so open and so in the public? Well, I think that's what, you know, a lot of them, and I'm sure the company does a little bit of this too, but not as much as the union, they want to get the public on their side. Mm -hmm. And some of the public was on their side and some of the public wasn't on their side. But I think that's always going to be the case. You know, they want to appeal to the public and, you know, I I think that's just how they operate. So, Mike, uh, your take on this, if you were neutral before, who do you think won the battle of public opinion? Whose side is the majority on? Wow, that's a good question. I think early on it was on the union, but I think it's time progressed. And um, disclosure came out about what they were asking for. Some of the four-day week and getting paid for five. Um, some people saw the wages they were making and said, hey, that's pretty good. That's you know more than I make. Mm-hmm. I think public opinion waned on their side, um, not to mention people thinking, hey, is this going to make the price of a car go up as well? Uh, at first, definitely on the union side, but I think that definitely waned as the strike uh, went on. Mike, thanks so much for the call. Uh, definitely, Mike knows what's going on. I think that, um, you know, suggesting that, you know, COVID had a lot to do with this. And then also keep in mind that these contracts come up every three to five years. The next UAW contract will be in 2028. Now, as somebody who watches this all play out and somebody who's a consumer of goods, we we all know that if the cost of cars go up, the cost of everything goes up, right? And labor being the major input, this all makes sense. This is economics. But to have to go to battle and to have to fight these wars every three to five years, I, I just I hope there is a better way. And hopefully the new UAW president, Sean Fain, I know he was was hailed and acclaimed for his tough stance and for, you know, the line in the sand that he drew. And he got a lot of what he wanted, but he didn't get a lot of what he wanted. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I think there's a lot to be said for the demographics, the people who are actually part of the union. What happens when they age out? Are they doing a good enough job to recruit young people in the next generation to to fill those jobs? And when it pertains to the auto workers, what do the electric vehicles and that production, what does that all uh, how does that all contribute to the end game here? Uh, You know, the other story that we should be following along these lines is what's happening with the USPS workers, United States Postal Service workers. Uh, There was just an incident the other day where a postal worker was was robbed by a number of suspects. Those suspects, as I understand, have been caught. But the United States postal workers in Milwaukee are demanding for more safety. They're demanding more uh, accountability, more security. And, you know, that is a whole separate discussion, what the U.S. Postal Service workers do and put themselves through and the danger they put themselves in. But over the weekend, we saw them protesting. They 
they had claims of a hostile work environment. They were asking for more money. They were asking for more safety. They were asking for more security. And we need to keep an eye on this. This is the the warning shot because this contract is up next year. Do we really want to be facing a situation where we have the United States Postal Service workers walking out? Now, in all of these cases, the market will decide. We can decide not to use the Postal Service. We can decide not to buy this or that car. But at the end of the day, the impact is that it causes a disruption in the supply chain. It causes a disruption in the the way that we do business and the way that we carry out our lives. And so... This is one that we need to be paying attention to. And I think the jury's still out. Speaking of juries, the jury's still out on whether or not the court of public opinion will side ultimately with the unions or with the companies. More when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner here on WTMJ. Welcome back. On WTMJ 154 on this Tuesday afternoon, we were pondering this question if union membership, if unions are are having a moment. And I think we have a, a broad range of of input on this. One of the texters suggested that, you know, they're they're worried about the huge increases in wages and benefits and how much that's contributing to the, the cost of goods. And it will pressure these companies to move towards robotics, especially as we look at the changeover in the demographics and as we look at the population shift and and, and, and workers aging out, do they just decide not to refill those positions? Uh, I want to move now to a, a similar story having to do with your local pharmacy. So Walgreens is really um, Walgreens and CVS Pharmacy, uh, some will re- re- recall a Rite Aid. Rite Aid just closed, uh, announced that they will be closing all of their, their pharmacies. But Walgreens and CVS workers recently staged a walkout. These are not union workers. These are not uh, part of any sort of formal union. But they walked out because they are upset with their their work environment and the expectations and what is happening to these pharmacies and and I think this is a case where these companies have an opportunity to really listen to the employees whether it's the pharmacists or the the folks at the checkout counter because these pharmacies are very important to our communities and and the reason for these walkouts have been that these pharmacists are being asked to fill uh, just absurd amounts of medication with so much reliance and uh, movement to these cl- these these Walgreens and these retail centers as extensions of medical facilities. These pharmacists and these techs are being asked to do work that is above and beyond what they're able to do. We're now getting vaccines at these pharmacies. And so many of these workers are saying, Listen, there aren't enough pharmacists. There's a there's a job shortage in the pharmacy field. They 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 say that they are not being paid enough. And they're saying that they're being overworked and that they're being forced into a situation where they're making mistakes and it's irresponsible. And so these workers have said we've had enough. And over the last couple of weeks in different communities, some of them were were walking out. And they're 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 asking for, they're mandating that they have a better work environment, a more suitable 
work environment where they're not asked to be doing the things that in many ways they feel like they're unqualified to do. And communities need to be paying attention to this because once we start losing our pharmacies, these are places, these are are establishments where so many people receive health care, basic health care. They're receiving their vaccinations, they're getting their, their medications. And if we can't figure out this staffing situation, we are going to be in for a world of hurt. And right now we see Rite Aids. We're being, the Rite Aids are coming off the market. And you see a lot of Walgreens that are closing, too. Not only because the 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 employees, but because of retail theft. It's a troubling situation for the pharmaceutical and the pharmacy, uh, the Rite Aids, the Walgreens, the CVSs of the world. We'll probably talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but right now it is 158 on WTMJ. When we come back, CJ Safer, the CEO for the Institute for Reforming Government, we're going to talk education. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Glad to be with you today. It's 207 on WTMJ. We are in the final hour of this Jeff Wagner Tuesday afternoon show. And in studio, we have with us CJ Safer. He is the CEO for the Institute for reforming government it is a policy think tank organization resource organization that focuses on policy uh that uh, gives all wisconsinites an opportunity to succeed and prosper they focus on education they focus on budget government accountability healthcare reform and economic growth cj thanks for being with us today Hey, how's it going? All right. That was quite an introduction, right? Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I know. And you were formerly with another organization. Where were you prior to IRG? Uh, Prior to IRG, three and a half years ago, I left as the executive vice president of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, working with um, Rick Essenberg for almost eight years. A frequent guest on the show. So you have great pedigree and great um, network uh, and and history to, to work from. So, CJ, we are on today to talk about one of the most important issues that you focus on with IRG, Institute for Reforming Government, and that is K-12 education. Can you give us a feel for the state of K-12 in the state of Wisconsin? Yeah, well, this uh, segment's incredibly timely. So we look at education of how do we increase academic uh, performance for students, uh, for teachers, in all sectors, in all parts of uh, the state. Wisconsin's a really big, diverse state. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we do at IRG is we do a lot of bridge building. So we drive around the state. We we get out. We're not an ivory tower group. We're not a Madison group. We've driven in the last two years maybe over 7,000 miles touring uh, public schools and charter schools and private schools in the Northwoods to the north side of Milwaukee. Um, and one of the things that we've been looking at is performance and especially post COVID because, you know, it was, it's a generational issue. Whatever you think about, uh, COVID, the school shutdowns, which resulted in tremendous unprecedented, uh, learning loss, especially with like reading. So that's why we were very acutely uh, focused on two weeks ago, the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction released their forward uh, test scores, which is every school uh, across the state, uh, public, private, and charters required to do a uh, basically like a standardized test. And one of the, the things that we were focused on is how do these schools recover from COVID? 
and what what schools are doing better than others, you know, trying to do similar demographics, because obviously, sure. you know, there's a lot of issues out out there, you know, that impact kids performance besides the classroom. And, you know, we try not to get into like the sector wars thing, but we are very, you know, interested in performance of school choice. You know, in Wisconsin, we have really one of the stronger school choice programs in the country. Uh, a lot of parents have access to whether it's a state-funded school voucher to attend a private school of their choosing, or maybe in a, a public charter school or a traditional public school. For those who don't know exactly how you define choice and charter and public school, can you just give a, kind of a, a general overview what we're really talking about in terms of school choice? Yeah, so in Milwaukee, we have uh, Milwaukee, Racine, and across the state, um, students who are uh, 300% below the federal poverty limit have access to a uh, really kind of a state and local funded uh, voucher that they can use to attend a private school of their choosing. In Milwaukee, it's been around uh, for well over 30 years. Um, it used to have a tremendous amount of Democrat support. Uh, it was a bipartisan uh, policy led by Governor Tommy Thompson and um, Representative Polly Williams in Milwaukee. And really, it was, how do we get kids a better opportunity than some of the really struggling Milwaukee public schools? Um, we also have public charters, which is, think of like, you know, traditional public schools, but with significantly less tape, more of an ability to experiment and do innovation. And then we have traditional public schools, which are kind of like your neighborhood zoned schools. So what were some of the takeaways then from your, your, your tour across the state? What did you see when you started comparing charter choice public schools in terms of the outcomes and the results of those forward test scores? Well, first off, let's, you know, we'll talk about some of the solutions that, that I think can improve schools across all sectors, but really just focused on the test scores. One of the things that we found is that, you know, looking at the data from the state is that you know, school choice is working. Parents exercising educational freedom by using a voucher or attending a charter school. Some of these schools, despite having similar difficulties, uh, are outperforming uh, their public school peers. So, for example, um, our K-12 researcher, Quentin Claybon, he put together a top 10 list because everyone loves top 10. So, you know, he did the top 10 reading proficiency schools in the entire state. Uh, that are high poverty. So we're looking at all these students at these schools uh, above 80% poverty. And when you look at those schools, six of those 10 schools are voucher or charter. Uh, so looking at, you know, you're looking at Nativity Jesuit in Milwaukee, um, in Kenosha, uh, Kenosha Christian, schools that are not public schools, that parents uh, from you know very modest means, low-income families and communities are using their educational option to attend schools that are really high-performing given the demographics. Uh, looking at mostly focused on uh, students uh, of color. So when you look at schools that have uh, high populations, um, uh, black or Hispanic, seven of those 10 schools are private schools or charter schools. And that's like that's an astronomical number, right? Because these are schools that traditionally get less funding than public schools. Mm -hmm. They don't have access to the same resources. Um, they don't, you know, they don't have the ability to, you know, levy for additional funds or go to referendum like uh, public schools do. 
And when you look at some of these schools, especially in Milwaukee, when you're looking at St. Augustine Prep, you're looking at Nativity Jesuit, St. Marcus, these are the schools that with recent test scores that are really performing incredibly well, not just in Milwaukee, but really across the state for dealing with uh, students of color and dealing with students from uh, high poverty uh, family backgrounds. So what do all these schools have in common outside? I did hear that some of them are religious. Some of them are not. What what are some of the things that you noticed that maybe a a public school or another school that's not on this top 10 list can learn from? Let's, you know, the beauty of uh, school choice is that you actually, you know, you have, you give parents the ability to make the decisions that are best for their families. So you're going to find that a lot of schools are going to be different. So as you mentioned, some of the schools that I mentioned that are performing incredibly well, uh, like St. Marcus, are faith-based, and there's a religious component to it. Uh, some, not so much. Uh, charter schools are not faith-based. So schools like Milwaukee College Prep in Milwaukee um, those are schools that are per- that are performing incredibly well. Um, really, just being a being a traditional, be, being a public school, but acting with less red tape. When we drove around the state, um, really touring public schools, private schools, and charter schools, the big thing that we uh, found is there's actually a lot of shared challenges um, and potentially even shared solutions. So when you look at issues like mental health issues, um, like uh, just transportation. I mean, these are issues that, you know, we heard of in Milwaukee, but also in the most rural parts of like the, of the uh, state where there's just not access to mental health treatment. Um, and, you know, schools are using COVID funding to kind of backfill, you know, what they need to kind of fix the mental health issue. Well, and, and you bring up so many good points and so many uh, great things that, that, could really help all students, whether it's choice or charter or public schools. The goal should be really on increasing these test scores. And right now, school choice is has become a very divisive and political issue. So much so that there is a, 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 there's a lawsuit pending at the state of Wisconsin. When we come back, we'll discuss that lawsuit and how likely it is that school choice could just vanish from options and opportunity for these students. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, right here on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, joined in studio by C.J. Safer, the CEO for Institute for Reforming Government. They focused on uh, policy and solutions uh, for Wisconsinites. They are a think tank and a research organization uh, that is doing truly valuable work, especially around K-12 through education in the state of Wisconsin, just discussing the state of K-12 through education and the fact that school choice is very important in trying to solve for the great need that we have in educating our children. And right now, school choice is being challenged at the Supreme Court in the state of Wisconsin. And there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal about this case. CJ, tell us a little bit more about what's at stake here. Uh, Last Thursday, October 12th, uh, a group called the Manaqua Brewing Company Super PAC, they made good on a promise to sue Wisconsin School Choice program. So it's a super PAC, um, Manaqua Brewery. They wanted to go after Wisconsin school choice programs as soon as the Wisconsin State Supreme Court 
uh, flipped from being, let's call it, a majority conservative to majority liberal with the ju- with the election of Justice Protosewitz back in the spring. A super back uh, Minocqua Brewery started to raise money with a promise to sue Wisconsin school choice programs. Um, they must have raised a bunch of money. Uh, two weeks ago, they filed a lawsuit, a uh, original action petition in front of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, calling Wisconsin school choice programs uh, parasitic and predatory. Uh, they went after, they sued the Milwaukee school voucher program. Uh, the school voucher program in Racine across the, the state. They also went after um, special needs vouchers, and they also went after uh, public charter schools, too. All of those programs, they uh, were sued. So, you know, the irony is last segment we talked about what are some schools that are doing incredibly well despite dealing with uh, difficult populations, uh, difficult students, and it's some of these schools that are actually in this lawsuit. And... Uh, it's in front of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the legalese is essentially, you know, they cite all these different provisions of the state constitution that, you know, there needs to be more oversight by the Department of Public Instruction because these schools get so much public funding. Um, they go after this uniform taxation provision in the state constitution that essentially says that, you know, more or less, but all schools have to be funded in similar manners. Uh, of taxpayer money, um, all of some of this has been rejected by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court uh, decades ago. Um, it's purely opportunistic. They're trying to take advantage of the new of the new complexion, uh, the new composition of the State Supreme Court. Um, and right now, it's in front of the State Supreme Court. We don't really know what's going to happen. The State Supreme Court, uh, I believe, is going to act on this petition uh, probably sometime in the next couple weeks. They'll decide whether they want to hear the case or not. If they say no, they don't want to hear it. It might go back down to the lower courts. If they say they do want to hear it, this is a case that will be, without a doubt, one of the biggest state Supreme Court cases uh, you know, in decades in Wisconsin. There'll be, there'll be oral arguments next year, and it'll be, it'll be decided by July 4th. And there is, this is not a hyperbole, it, flat out, anyone who reads the um, lawsuit, this would end school choice in Wisconsin, uh, period. Full, full stop, some of these schools uh, would cease to exist come next year, next school year. Uh, we're talking about over 50,000, 60,000 students across the state, a lot of them in Milwaukee, uh, that would literally be kicked out of their schools um, almost overnight. They would need to find new new schools. We should talk about that. Um, but we were talking about really a complete overhaul of Wisconsin's K twelve education if this lawsuit is is successful in the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Last time I checked in the state budget discussions when the the governor signed the the state budget, the biennial state budget, school choice did receive additional funding, as did public school. What would happen to all the money you say the kids would all get kicked down into the public school system what about the money are we still talking about the money following the kids and if so a voucher isn't the same cost as what mps is really trying to figure per student so how does this all work or is that all to be decided by the courts and and all the people surrounding this chaos well there can be a lot that's decided by the courts because these are all state constitutional claims it's you know, we have a state Supreme Court. It's a court of last re- resort for claims about the state constitution. There really won't be a way to appeal this. 
Um, so some of the questions on funding and manner and mechanism, you know, probably they won't touch. Um, and the money would really just kind of default to, you know, life preschool choice, which is really kind of hard to fathom because it's been in the fabric of Wisconsin for well over 30 years. Um, it is really, it's hard to think about what life would be like if, if these schools are, uh, if the school choice pro- programs are shut down. Uh, but it is a very real possibility, especially because we have a uh, a new state Supreme Court that's a liberal majority, and we just don't know uh, how progressive and how aggressive this court will uh, be. Well, so when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about some of the solutions. But all I keep thinking about is, haven't these kids been through enough? We're talking about potentially 60,000 students across the state of Wisconsin, mostly in Milwaukee, who would now have to start over again with a new school. Many of these kids just came back into school post-COVID. So huge ramifications that we could potentially be looking at. CJ Safer, the Institute for Reforming Government. When we come back, let's talk about some solutions for education here in Wisconsin, right here on WTMJ. Twenty-eight on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. We are joined in studio by C.J. Safer, CEO for Institute for Reforming Government, talking about this uh, school choice lawsuit that's before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, or could be before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, before the school year's end. Uh, we could find out a lot more information in the coming weeks. But right now, C.J. and his organization are focused on identifying some of the solutions, the bipartisan solutions that will help educate the hundreds of thousands of children uh, across the state of Wisconsin. So, C.J., what have you found and what do you think are some of these uh, these efforts that could uh, really make a difference? Right now, we're focused on really <clears throat> there's a lot of solutions that we need to uh, do in Wisconsin. We're focused on really three main ones at the moment. <clears throat> First off, my colleague, Quentin Claibon, our researcher for K-12, uh, he is tracking all the spending that districts are doing on COVID from the uh, COVID money. So the federal government has given schools uh, well over a billion dollars of federal money that's supposed to be sent uh, to the districts, that's supposed to be used to improve learning, especially learning loss post-COVID. Uh, so what he's done is he's created a database on our website where we're tracking how every district is spending money. Long story short, by September of 2024, every last dollar has to be spent. Uh, and we are encouraging districts to use money wisely, use money for uh, things like mental health, use money for things like uh, tutoring and literacy and childhood, um, different types of extracurricular activities really trying to help uh, students that are you know, struggling from COVID uh, to basically get caught up. We're trying to like, for, con- convince districts not, not to use the money on athletic uh, facilities or construction, which a lot of them are, to believe it or not. Well, and so many of these solutions, it sounds like, would require additional staff. And with the, yep. the staffing shortage, how do you encourage them or incentivize them to... to- realistically figure that out well that's the second big thing we're uh, working on in the state legislature is one of the big things that we heard when we traveled the entire state doesn't matter if you're in the north woods or the north side of milwaukee public school charter school or private school the number one issue that every school faces is teachers and workforce and there's just not enough teachers there's, there's not enough high quality teachers but there's a teacher shortage 
in the entire state of Wisconsin, every single corner, every single sector, the state legislature and the governor have to be laser focused on really coming together to figure out how we can increase that talent pipeline. Um, these is holding back all these schools that they don't have just, they don't have enough teachers and they don't have enough good teachers. We're trying to, uh, create something called teacher apprenticeships. So kind of take a model that's working in other industries and apply it to the teaching workforce, get people who want to be teachers into the classroom much, much quicker. Uh, so hopefully that can alleviate a little bit of the pipeline burden and kind of increase quicker uh, the workforce for education. Well, what about retaining teachers? I know a lot of them, you know, post-COVID just said, you know what, I'm going to hang it up uh, right now. So how, how do you manage that? Or is this a potential area for solution? Well, that's one, one of the huge issues is how do we kind of keep staff and keep them happy and entertained? Of course, Act 10 gave school districts a tremendous amount of resources as far as kind of flexibility on pay and merit pay and kind of paying for performance. Um, that's an, an issue that there's COVID funding and school districts, uh, every school across the state got a lot more funding in the most recent bipartisan uh, bud- uh, budget deal. And we've long in- encouraged that more money needs to be kind of bypassing the administration in these districts and going right to teachers and right into the classroom. The third big policy is uh, last year, last summer, we were involved uh, in some of the bipartisan in a bipartisan bill to change the way that kids are taught reading. Uh, reading is just so basic, and uh, it used to be taught with just phonics and just sounding out words. Uh, recently, there was a national trend, really big in in Wisconsin, to go more towards memorization, um, and that had disastrous results, especially during um, COVID. So, you know, there was a law that was there was a bill that was signed into law by Governor Evers that would require phonics for all schools, require that teachers be learned how to taught reading the right way, kind of rejecting kind of junk science, for lack of a better term. And right now, we think one of the biggest things that schools can be doing is implementing these laws. The DPI has to be implementing it and making sure that we teach reading the right way by phonics and making sure that we can identify the kids that can read by third grade and those that can't get them the resources that they need as soon as possible. There's been a lot of resistance to even test at some of those yep. younger ages. How long will it be before we'll start to see results of this new policy and new legislation, new way of teaching reading? Well, a lot of it's going to be up to the DPI and a lot of it's going to be up to the school districts. If uh, you know, we are going to be working hard to ensure full implementation of the law. Um, other states like Mississippi that have implemented these these laws really saw results within three, four years. Mississippi went from last place, really kind of one of the worst states in the nation to do reading, uh, especially for black students. And now they've jumped about 10 spots. So our hope is that right now Milwaukee is really one is really right now the worst uh, city for reading, uh, especially for black kids. And we hope that Milwaukee can make similar gains, but they have to focus on teaching reading the right way and get these kids the resources they need as quickly as possible. CJ Safer from the Institute for Reforming Government. Uh, before we depart here, how can we engage in this? How can we learn more about the efforts, especially around K through 12 education, an issue that's so close and so important to so many of us? Our website is reforminggovernment.org. Uh, listeners can please go there, get access to the resources that we just talked about. But also, if there's any questions that you have for us or our team, or if you have a story that you want us to like tell, 
Uh, there's going to be places there. And please, like, keep in touch with us and, like, kind of tell us your stories of education because that's kind of what we're trying to advocate for. Now, CJ Safer Institute for Reforming Government, thank you so much for what you do. Thanks for bringing us this information. And thanks for making us think a little bit bigger and more broadly about education in the state of Wisconsin. Thank you. All right. When we come back, more on Northridge. We'll even talk a little Kenny Chesney. I know Aaron's been looking forward to this all show. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, here till 3 o'clock. Big thank you to my last guest, CJ Safer, from the Institute for Reforming Government, talking about... K through 12 education in the state of Wisconsin. And one thing I didn't get to say at the top of that interview is that I have a, a personal connection to the issue related to school choice. My first internship while I was at Marquette University was actually a public relations internship for a group called Partners Advancing Values in Education. And that organization helped raise private dollars to provide half tuition scholarships for low income students to attend private schools, private religious schools, which is one facet of school choice. And I've been so interested in this issue since that time. This was over 25 years ago when this started in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, it was bipartisan. Partisan at that time. I didn't know the difference between Democrat and Republican and why there would be divide over this issue. But certainly, as time has gone on, it's become more and more divisive, uh, unfortunately. But I, I do have faith and confidence in the groups like CJ's that are doing the great work, that are trying to come up with solutions that are bipartisan nature and really focused on doing what's best for the kids. And, uh, yeah, it's a very complicated issue, no doubt. So we've been following this issue, and I know Jeff has talked about it as well, related to Northridge um, and the development of Northridge. I have very, very strong feelings and opinions about what should be done at Northridge and worked with the developer um, who had offered to purchase the land, just needed to be rezoned uh, from a retail use to a, a, a manufacturing or industrial use, and was really advocating for that as a solution. This, of course, was property that has sat vacant for over 20 years. We had a fire take place at Northridge uh, just last week or earlier. Yeah, it was late last week. The fire department went out there, put out the fire. The The fire chief was very angered because this property is sitting unguarded. So there are vandals. There are people starting fires. And eventually, I, I, one of these fires is just going to take the place down, which would be a, a tragedy in and of itself. But the update here is that news broke yesterday that the city has been in touch with the current owner which is Black Spruce. It is an investor, a Chinese investor who had big grand intentions for the mall. They wanted to create kind of an Asian supermarket and uh, some other retail kind of around that area. But that, of course, never came to fruition. Well, the city has made an offer to purchase that property. And it, they don't say exactly what they want to do with it, but they want to take ownership of it so that they can raise that property. And I've been told that they have uh, some plans to potentially do some some affordable housing, some mixed-use retail, uh, you know, which I think probably can't happen for 
quite a long time since the market demand really doesn't exist for that type of property. But what we learned is that the current owner said, okay, city of Milwaukee, we'll be happy to sell it to you uh, for the same deal that the private investor made, which is $3 million and to have uh, property taxes in the amount of $1.1 million, basically wiped from the books. There's also something like $500,000 in court fines that have been levied against Northridge Mall owner that they have asked to be wiped off the books. And, you know, I'm not sure the city is going to take that deal. Uh, I'm not sure that the city has the funds to do that. There's a ton of work that will need to be done and a ton of investment that would need to be made. Uh, I'm disappointed that there isn't a private investor that would take a chance that would take a leap. Uh, they would need to have a different use, but you know, the mayor and the department of city development is very confident that that potential owner exists out there. But right now is just not the time. Uh, it is very sad to see these fires take place. It is very sad to see, to see to that area continue to be such an anchor uh, on our, on our area, especially because it was such a vibrant area long long ago uh i know somebody's waiting to weigh in on this on the talk and text line um 855-616-1620 i know a lot of people have speculated other things that could go in there i know when this first started we were talking about an industrial or manufacturing use some people have said they want it to be a wind farm uh, you know others say you know could this be a solar farm to actually produce energy for the region there's a lot of different things that could happen but you know if there's already an idea that the city has like let's get people rallied around it there's so many layers to this is so complicated complicated steve from oak creek you're on wtmj uh thank you and i think the best idea for that northridge property is as a solar energy farm oh. uh the city of milwaukee could could team up with uh, we energies and private equity investors and create a solar energy facility there. The property is ideal for it. It's already wide open. It's got great exposures to the east, south, and west. There's already transmission lines on the west side running north and south. I think it could become the envy of every city in the country to turn that into a solar energy farm uh, sponsored by the city of Milwaukee and We Energies. Well, and it's 50 acres or, or something like 50 acres. And, you know, there's no doubt that there is a higher and better use. Granted, that's not going to spur the economic development, I think, that potentially the city and some of the leadership is hoping for. But it would certainly be better than we have now. And in this article that was in the, the Milwaukee Business Journal, uh, you know, the mayor does comment, and, and I have to be reasonable, as he suggests, reasonable folks can disagree on what ultimately happens there, but we shouldn't settle on something because it's the first thing out of the gate, or he suggests we shouldn't settle because it's the easiest thing to do. Steve, I couldn't agree with you more. Let's look at creative solutions. That solar farm idea, we've seen it happen in other areas. This is Let's make it work for us rather than against us. Steve from Oak Creek, thank you so much for the call. Uh, when we come back, uh, when we come back, uh, uh, this hit my uh, text message, my email, right as I was coming into the studio. And I have a couple of thoughts. It's Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown Band will play American Family Field opposite 
of Summerfest. We'll discuss when we return. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ 248 this afternoon. Boy, this you throw Northridge out there and people have lots of ideas. Uh, our previous caller suggested a solar farm. We had a private investor who wanted to uh, make a manufacturing facility. Lots of great options. Here's the deal. What we have now isn't working. It's working against us. So let's figure out a solution. Uh, Raphael in Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I'm a long-time listener, not a first-time caller, but I, I always think about what to do with that property. It's a shame to uh, knock it down. Like the last caller said, a solar farm would be great, but I know they're talking about knocking on the bones or uh, spending millions of dollars to fix it. I think they should use that same glass and uh, make uh, Northridge into a uh, like mechanical garden type of thing, solar, uh, use that same uh, panels from the bones, and reduce, reuse, and recycle, you know, save money, and then maybe the kids... Uh, for example, Raphael, I, I mean, here's the deal. We're yes. thinking outside the box here. Right now, you've got a vacant box, a million square feet, a desert of a, a parking lot, and you've got a, a, an unsecured property that just continues to invite crime. Raphael, thanks for the call. I, I think where we're going on this, and, and I don't I don't suppose that we're going to get to a solution anytime soon here, but I definitely think it's important and I'm encouraged to see the mayor and DCD commissioner to really come forward and say, listen, we know that we need to solve for this. We know that we need to come up with something that is outside what it currently is, which is a a desert and an anchor that invites criminals and invites vandals. And God forbid this thing would crumble and somebody would die in there or a firefighter who's trying to put out of a, a, a vandal's uh, flame is somehow hurt or killed. We just we just got to get ahead of this, and we have every opportunity. But I'm encouraged to see that there are at least conversations starting. All right, so this quick headline it, it caught my attention, and it, it is that Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown band. For those of you who have been to Kenny Chesney show, Zach Brown band show, this is this is kind of the equivalent of in in my day. Jimmy Buffett concerts. All right. He's like the, the modern day Jimmy Buffett. Is that what, what some people are calling it? I, I'm equal opportunity here. I like Jimmy Buffett and I like Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown. So, you know, it's, it's a, a full half day event. It's, you know, a lot of times Kenny Chesney will have the sand, kind of the sand pit out in front. Uh, you, you go, you dress up. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, what we see today is that on June 22nd, the Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown band will be at American Family Field. This will be opposite of Summerfest, the first Saturday of Summerfest in 2024. You know, I think it's, it's you know, interesting to, to think about this. We have so much demand for concerts and entertainment in our city. And we have so many of these venues that are vying for these artists. And I have no doubt that both Whoever is booked, and I'm sure it's announced uh, for Summerfest, opening weekend, Saturday of Summerfest, that is going to be a sold-out show. I have no doubt that Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown Band at American Family Field on Saturday, June 22nd, will be a sold-out show. The problem I see right now, for me at least, is which one do I go to? So anyway, this could be a good problem to have. It'll be interesting to see... 
if this becomes a discussion, there are only so many weekends in the summer and there are only so many places that one person can be at what time. And and also there are so many are only so many entertainment dollars that we can spend. So we will continue to follow this. Again, Kenny Chesney and Zach Brown Band just announced we'll be at American Family Field on Saturday, June 22nd, opposite of opening day of Summerfest 2024. It's 2.52. When we come back, we'll see what John and Greg have on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.